At Hodder Education, we know that every geography classroom need is different, which is why we have developed a wide range of print and digital Key Stage 3, GCSE and A-level geography resources, written by the experts that you know and trust. Whether it's the award-winning Progress in Geography, Key Stage 3 online bank of resources, or our brand new set of My Revision Notes, written specifically for the exam board you deliver, we have the right set of resources to support your students. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash geography today to explore more. Welcome to JogPod. Today my guest is Dr Sylvia Knight, who's Head of Education at the Royal Meteorological Society and, and actually a long-time colleague and friend of mine. We go back oh, 15, 16 years, I think. So it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you today in a more formal setting, really. Welcome to JogPod, Sylvia. Thank you, John. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to, to come and chat to you. Well, I, it's about time, actually. And <laughs> my first question, because I've never... I've never had the chance to ask you this before. So here we go. How did you end up working as head of education for the Royal Met Sock? What pathways took you there? Uh, well, as you say, I've been doing this job for about 15 years now. And I guess it all started with the with the A-level choices that I made. Although I did do geography A-level, I also did maths and physics and German. And they were very much the subjects that I enjoyed. I've never been keen on the kind of trendy bits of physics. So the kind of very big and very small stuff. But I've always liked understanding the physics of the world around me, the world I could see, I guess, which I think is pretty much summarised in the Terry Pratchett quote, geography is just physics slowed down with a couple of trees stuck in it. I really love that. <laughs> I guess it's quite controversial. So I guess my dad did met observations during his national service and always spoke very fondly of it. So it was always something I was aware of and it was something that quite appealed. But the careers advice I got at school was pretty poor. But somehow I got the correct information that if I wanted a career in meteorology, I needed to do a physics degree. So I went off to Cambridge University to study natural sciences, specialising in physics. And then that was then a fairly straightforward pathway to carry on to Reading University to do my PhD in meteorology, which then led on to, to various research positions at Reading, Oxford and, and various other places. But I guess through those research positions, I was becoming ever more engaged with, with outreach and education. And I was a member of the Royal Met Sox Education Committee when in 2006, the then Education Officer Mark Walker announced he was retiring and his position became available. That was terrible timing for me. I had just had my first child, but it was too good an opportunity to miss. So I went for the job with a six-week-old baby in tow, was lucky enough to get it, and I've loved the job ever since. <laughs> well, she's going to have to be a meteorologist as well and following your footsteps. Uh, I think that's looking unlikely at the moment. She's 15 now, but <laughs> yeah, we'll see. It's interesting that you chose physics it's a disproportionately male subject. I, I talked about this just a couple of days ago to some geography colleagues and they said, oh no, it's changing, it's changing, surely. So I went and checked. And from 2017 to now, the A-level take-up of girls has only gone up from 21% to 23%. So one, you must have been almost on your own in those classes at school. And then why do you think that is, that the girls don't choose that subject? What's going on? It was definitely true doing physics at Cambridge that when I was doing it, I think there was 
was yeah it was far lower than 21 percent or 23 percent of us that were girls by the time we got to the final year yeah it is really quite I don't know whether it's worrying or depressing or what it is that you know concerning anyway that gender balance is is so poor and this is despite the fact that Institute of Physics has been doing a huge amount of work over the past five ten years to try and improve the gender balance so it's not like people haven't been trying there's definitely a, a need for role models so the Brian Cox effect was very real on recruitment to physics on the whole but I think it was Brian Cox has had a much bigger impact of boys getting into physics than on girls getting into physics so there's almost a need for a, a Brian Cox equivalent <laughs> a female Brian Cox equivalent for me like I said I've never been interested in the trendy bits of physics and so if I were to be promoting physics I would I would definitely focus on the more kind of down-to-earth bits of physics for getting girls into the subject but you know that's just me and maybe that's not going to be true of everyone it's really difficult but in meteorology at least the gender balance is much much better than it is in physics I hadn't thought about that until you, just until you said it then, but that's right enough, isn't it? It's physics, but physics in a slightly different form, I suppose. We talk about it when we're geographers and say there's not enough physics in in the weather teaching that we do sometimes. But looking at meteorologists, you can imagine that there's not so much physics if you're not careful. It's meteorology, but actually it's it's full of physics. Oh, it's full of physics. And once you study the subject or work in the field, then it's, it's largely physics. I mean, I guess we're all doing a little bit more communication and application of our work now than was maybe true 20 years ago, but it's still largely physics. It's interesting as well what you said about careers advice, because there's no direct route. Meteorology is similar to geology, I suppose. Unless you encounter it with an inspiring teacher, how do you know that there's a pathway there if your careers advice is not great? Yeah, absolutely. And the number of emails I get from people who have specialised in geography or other subjects at a level or, or even at university and then say, you know, how can I go and do meteorology now? Um, and I say, yeah, have you at least got maths A level? And they say, no. And the simple answer then is that you can probably get into meteorology, but your options on what you do are going to be very, very limited. So it's getting the message across that, yes, you're, you're doing meteorology, you're covering weather and climate stuff in, in geography at school. But if you want to take that on, then you do need to do the maths and the physics as well. There isn't really any maths and physics, uh, any, any meteorology in maths and physics, as far as I know. People meet it in geography and then they yes. think, oh, crikey. I really should have had the maths and the physics as well. And I haven't because I've done geography, history and economics or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a real issue. And I think historically the society has fought to get whether moved from geography to, to science teaching. I don't think that's necessarily the right answer. But it'll be interesting to see how now that climate change is much more on the agenda, whether that does have any impact on to where those sorts of concepts are met at school. Yes, it's interesting because they take a different line, wouldn't they? The physicists wouldn't have the sense of place. The geographers don't have the, well, I've got to be careful how I say this. Some geographers. Some geographers <laughs> might not necessarily have the depth of maths and the, and the science to take it through. It's, yeah, it's an interesting challenge. Yes, so it is, so it is. Look, right, you've been at the Royal Met SOC now. It's got to be 15 years, hasn't it? Because you joined the Royal Met, well, you took that post at about the same time as I started at the Geographical Association, I think, perhaps a little later. Was it 2007? It was 2007, yeah. 
Yes. Early 2007, yeah. I started in 2006. I know over that time you've been involved in some really interesting projects. There's times when the GA and the Royal Met Soccer work really closely together. It would be really interesting just for you to talk through some of the things that you've been involved in. I know there have been some fascinating stuff. Uh, my role's changed so much over the 15 years. It's also just very, very diverse on a day-to-day basis, which is part of the reason I like jobs so much. So at the moment, I'm involved with developing new resources for geography, maths and physics teachers. I'm delivering teacher training to geography and science teachers. I'm engaged with policy work to see how we can improve the climate literacy of school leavers, a whole load of other stuff. One of my favourite projects recently has been producing the 11 to 14 teachers guide on weather and climate, which we published this year, because I felt that that really brought together a lot of the work that I've done recently and a lot of the, the things that I use in when I'm doing teacher training or developing resources. So kind of, yeah, it just felt like it joined up a lot of our thinking. And what else? So I've been lucky enough to work with such a diverse bunch of talented people. So whether they're teachers or scientists or filmmakers or artists, um, theatre companies, policymakers, authors, everyone that them's had an impact on the way I work and the skills I have. I'm certainly a lot more confident standing in front of a, a classroom full of people now than I was 15 years ago. And I'm slightly more confident standing in front of a camera than I was 15 years ago, but not much. Well, you did a Channel 4 documentary, didn't you? Oh, I featured on it um, on Britain's Wildest Weather ones once a few years ago. Yeah, that was certainly a, a novel experience for me, but not one that I'm particularly keen to repeat. But it was quite shocking just how many people saw it. Yeah, other bizarre things like you've chased um, a weather balloon from Manchester. Yeah. What was that yeah. all about? So we we actually quite often get contacted by schools who want to launch um, balloons up into the stratosphere to get those kind of iconic pictures that you get when you can get just high enough if you send a camera up to be able to see the curvature of the earth and the atmosphere below and, and the darkness of space beyond. The simple answer to most schools is you're not allowed because you do have to have CAA permission to be able to launch anything because what a weathered balloon and the payload would do to an aircraft is, is not good. So most schools aren't in a position to be able to do that, but we thought that as a kind of case study we would do it with the school with all the correct permissions and everything and scientists involved as well so that we could track the balloon with the with the radio sound equipment so that we could see what the what the atmosphere was doing as it went up and relate that to the images that the camera on the balloon was taking again not something I would normally do in my everyday work at all but you know then having to chase that balloon and trying to find it when after the balloon had burst and it came back down to earth and track where it was before the the GPS tracker ran out of battery and we lost it yeah that was quite fun there was a bit of a chatter actually at the christmas dinner they were talking about an experiment that you'd done that was filmed making clouds in a bottle it sounded really fascinating i love making clouds in bottles because it tends to get an ooh from an audience whatever age they are it's a very simple thing to do but it's very effective because you can bring in so much physics and you can bring that in at at whatever level your your audience is at you could bring in a thermometer to show that as the pressure in the bottle changes cloud droplets form the temperatures also changing you can bring in cloud condensation new cloud there's so many things you can talk about making a cloud in a bottle and it relates to so much of what's going on in the atmosphere and what's driving our everyday weather and indeed climate change so yeah it's a brilliant demonstration it does sound like a fantastic simple demonstration of something that's really quite complicated and i keep seeing mistakes where people have put things up on twitter and they'll say something like the air rises and condenses 
Oh, yeah, that's a pet hate. Condensing air. Another pet hate is when people talk about how much water the air can hold, because while that kind of works on a very simple level and it's kind of maybe conceptually easy to grasp, it totally breaks down circumstances. So, for example, in a warming atmosphere, if a warmer atmosphere holds more water, how come we're getting more rainfall? It just doesn't work. The only correct way to talk about the temperature impact on condensation and evaporation is the fact, simply the fact that evaporation rates increase as the temperature warms and as the temperature falls, evaporation rates decrease. So yeah, that's another pet hate. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met anyone who talks so enthusiastically as you do about weather and climate. So, <laughs> what, have you, what have been your key weather memories in all that time? Oh, um, one of the quotes I heard at COP26, which really resonated with how I try to work anyway, was the, the need to avoid referring to things which are distant, either in, in space or in time. So I'm going to give you a, a memory just from the weekend before last, from where I live, where we had a very heavy snowfall that was actually very poorly forecast. So I don't know what it was like over in Sheffield the weekend before last, but on the other side of the Pennines, we got a good 10 centimetres of snowfall on the Sunday afternoon. I love snow. And it was pretty magical, but it totally disrupted our plans for that day. It was a bit of a pain, but it was lovely anyway. Uh, we got snowed in, but it was on the Saturday. And we're on the A57, so it's quite a major route. And a, a Muller light lorry got blocked at the bottom. Our garden runs onto the A57. So we were supplying him with cups of tea, but obviously a whole lot of people didn't get their yogurts <laughs> that morning. <laughs> You mentioned COP26, so perhaps I ought to to lead into some questions about that because I don't know how many teachers know about this. This is is the problem with so much information. There's fantastic stuff that's hidden in amongst the trees that you don't necessarily spot. You did daily bulletins, well, you and Hannah Maddinson did, from COP26. You were there for the whole session. There are 10, aren't there? They're a fantastic resource, just short clips. Yeah. That's right. So it was obvious that loads of organisations were going to be talking about COP26, what with it being in the UK, and actually going ahead as a real live event, which we weren't sure about until just a few weeks beforehand. But as an organisation, we were lucky enough to have observer status, and I wanted to produce something that was a little bit different. So it didn't seem that anybody was going to do anything specifically aimed at helping secondary age students understand what COP26 was all about and how it worked and what it looked like. So that was the aim of the bulletins, and it seemed like they were very well used by schools across the country. Yeah, being at COP was an incredible experience. I learned so much about COP, but also about politics and a whole range of industries and what they're doing about climate change and, and so much more. They're not just of their time either, are they? They're still useful. So I think we ought to put a link into those. I, if anyone's teaching it retrospectively and saying this is the progress that was made, you've got a sort of moment in time each morning that explains what happened. Yeah, the timing was an interesting one because we wanted to make sure that they were out in time for morning registration if schools were going to be using them like that and offer morning assemblies or whatever. But in order to get the videos produced and uploaded, we actually had to produce them the afternoon before. So it was very hard even to say what the conclusions from that day were going to be, let alone what was going to be happening the next day, because that wasn't announced until 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. You didn't get the programme for the next day. So there was a little bit of guesswork involved. Now, I know, I know I know this is true because you've told me you've you see lots of calls for more climate change education in schools and you get it from students, you get it from academics, you get it. You actually you get it from the press as well, much in the same way as we did at the Geographical Association sometimes. We've already touched on this this crossover between physics and geography. 
I think teaching about climate change is really very difficult for teachers. And I, I'm not sure that it is something that should be just taught in geography. It needs much clearer curriculum thinking, I think, than that. What's the Royal Met Sock response to all of that? How do you see what you're producing? Well, as I said, we are currently working with maths and physics teachers as well as with, with geographers. And we've engaged with the Climate Education Action Plan that was developed by the University of Reading and launched during COP26. I don't know whether you've seen it, but it has nine points where they see the priority should be in terms of engaging with, with climate education in schools. But something I see personally as a priority is working with the exam boards to see how the, the quality and quantity of climate change education can be improved across a broad range of subjects within the current specifications. We're exploring a number of ways of approaching this, and it's probably the thing that I'm most excited about at the moment, you know, of all the things that might happen over the next year. I think that as, as a society, we're quite uniquely placed to be able to, to get involved because we we've got a broad range of climate expertise here at the society, but we're also used to engaging with different subjects in schools. I think a lot of subject organisations, by their very definition, you know, will only engage with with one group of teachers, but because as a subject, as we've already touched upon, you know, we already fall between different subject areas in schools. So we're very used to talking to trying to, to, to engage with different sets of teachers. So maybe it's something that we can do quite well. It, it is difficult, I think. I, I've done some work at um, the GA conference and I've had geographers coming in who's Understanding of certain areas of geography, one of the examples was just a physical geography activity that we were doing on the development of waterfalls. And there's one set model usually that you get, geographers listening to this will recognise it, with a, with a hard cap rock, a soft rock underneath, undercutting, blah blah That's only one of a, of a whole range of, of models that work for the formation of waterfalls, but it's it's the only one that most of those teachers had, had ever encountered themselves. So it was the only one that they knew. So their knowledge was limited. And it's very difficult to embrace something if you're a physicist and you don't understand that element of your subject, or if you're a geographer, and you've never encountered that element. There are some geography teachers, I think, will have gone through and will have not touched on meteorology beyond very basically at key stage three, perhaps doing the difference between climate and weather. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do a lot of teacher training and I think teacher training is will definitely be needed across subjects forever, really. But definitely when we're if we're looking at, at increasing people's climate literacy and you're absolutely right. I think people, particularly in geography, are coming into the subject into teaching geography with such a broad range of, of specialisms that yeah, it can be a subject that a, a lot of teachers, whether or not they've touched upon it themselves in school, or can find one of the things that they feel least confident about teaching. Mm. Now, we will come on to this because you're producing some, well, you have produced, but are producing some fantastic resources. So I do want to talk about those and we need to put the links in for them. But I want to go back to something that you said earlier as well, which I thought was interesting. You, you were talking about the messages from, from COP26 that you highlighted and, and about climate action. And the link with that to climate literacy, really, if, you, if you're not aware, it's very difficult to start making changes to your own lifestyle. I think there's, a, there's the subject itself and then there's the movement to what are we encouraging young people to do and to think about in the future. And then there's a, another issue alongside that about, about future careers 
And you said, this is what's led me to it. You said that your career's advice wasn't great. We're looking at two things, I think, lifestyle choices, but also the opportunity for new careers in the future that are all linked into climate change. So one thing that came across loud and clear at COP26 was that every career will be a green career because as a global community, we need to rewire everything we do. And so whether it's how we transport things, how we source goods, how we recycle things, absolutely everything we do, we need to rethink. And that's really exciting and a real opportunity for redeveloping all sorts of technologies and processes in a much fairer as well as a greener way, which leads on to the message that a sustainable future can be a prosperous future. And again, at COP, it was clear that industrial and financial leaders are almost ahead of the politicians on that because everybody wants to be in the lead. Everybody wants to be developing the new technologies that we have to have and we have to move towards using. So we need school leavers to have the right skills for these new careers. And as you say, we also need school leavers to be more likely to take climate action in their personal as well as their professional lives. So we really need to take a look at what climate literacy should be and and how we achieve that. In terms of education, as you say, we know that it's the climate literacy of, of teachers and education policymakers, which has the biggest impact on the climate literacy of students. So it's all about how working out how we how we go about making an impact on the climate literacy of those people really quickly. It's difficult. I've just seen, I wish I'd, I'd wish I'd kept the reference now. There's something from the DfE that advises teachers about not straying into political areas when they're talking about things like climate change and encouraging that's students. It's impossible. And, and that's and exactly so. It is impossible. It, it's a, it is difficult for teachers. I did some work on that critical thinking for achievement course that the DfE and the, the GA and the Historical Association presented to teachers. And we did some work on how far we thought it was a, a teacher's responsibility to encourage students to activism. Mm. And it, it made people very uncomfortable. We had a, a, a line across the classroom. If you agree with the statement or if you disagree with the statement, there were lots of people who were unsure about what line they would take because they feel that they shouldn't be promoting their values. That's how they saw it. Mm. these students and and promoting activism but if we don't the young people of today will have a very different future if we aren't encouraging them to push for these sorts of changes it's really hard and I guess it's the same sort of issue that religious education teachers have always had to face in that they can't push their own religious beliefs to the students that they're teaching it's a sort of a very similar issue isn't it how to keep your your personal your personal viewpoint out of your teacher while still out of your teaching while still giving a broad and objective I guess view of of all the options but yeah I think we've seen sustainability sort of taught at least at primary level lots with the very clear messages about things like turning the lights off and recycling which you know at the end of the day don't have a, a huge impact on things you could ask how is it okay to teach that sort of put that sort of message across and not put the messages across that actually the single most effective thing that you can probably do is to make sure that your MP is still caring about climate change issues whatever their party you know they need to be keeping it at the near the top of their agendas so I don't think that's particularly political but yeah It's interesting what you said, a sustainable future can be a prosperous future, you said. And when I, I look at the, the responses to COP26, 
depending on who you read, you're either ranging from optimism about the future or you're reading about despair for the future. We're not going to achieve 1.5, we're on 2.4, and that's going to be dreadful and some countries are going to sink. And there are several issues here. There's, there's eco-anxiety that I talked to Kit Rackley about and, and whether it was a, a safeguarding issue. Kit considered it definitely is a safeguarding issue for these students who feel very anxious about it. You've been involved with this for a long time. The Royal Metsock's been involved with this for a long time. And what's your view? Are you are you tending towards the positive and the optimistic, or are you tending towards despair for the future? I'm tending towards the optimistic. I think it's been really interesting seeing the different messages coming out of COP. I don't know whether it's just a reflection on what bits of COP people went to, because there was so much going on at the same time. And maybe if you only went to the, the kind of the more formal political bits, you got a very different message to if you attended a lot of the side events where you had people from industry and finance and all sorts of different organisations presenting stuff where I think the message was was far more positive and it didn't feel like greenwash. It felt like these people were genuinely cared about what they were doing and were quite excited about what they were doing and saw real potential for tremendous change really quite quickly in all sorts of, of areas that I didn't know stuff was happening in. So that was really quite exciting. So five of us from the Royal Metsoc went to, to COP26 and one of the people was a retired member who had been part of the UK's official delegation to the first 21 COP meetings. So he'd been at every COP meeting up to Paris. And then this was the first one that he'd gone back to now was, you know, just in a kind of observing role. And he said that that what he felt was that very definitely that the politicians were almost lacking behind everybody else and that the real drive for change. Whereas before, maybe you would have seen people from industry trying to put the brakes on and saying, oh, we don't want to change and we can't do that. It was almost the other way around now. And there'd been a real shift in, in people's thinkings. And now people were thinking, this is the opportunity to develop new technology. This is the opportunity to get to the front of all this new industrial development and we can make lots of money. <laughs> yeah. That, Basically. Well, that's, that's so a message that excites a lot of people, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that's what drives change at the end of the day. So yeah, and it's something that came out, you know, the Stern report back in what was it, 2007, when they looked they first really looked at the economics of climate change. And again, the message was very clear that adapting to climate change was going to cost a whole lot more than than preventing it. Um, and that message is still there now, probably clearer than ever. And I think it's slowly actually getting across to people. Yes, it, it is interesting that um, it, it's gone from, uh, that has gone from negative to positive. But listening to you makes me feel even more positive than, than perhaps I had before. I, I do know, I, I'm putting myself in a, in a position as, a, as a, a geography teacher again now, who's really busy doing shed loads of other stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, crikey, I, I've got to fit this in somewhere. But it means I've got to do some reading because I don't know enough. It means I've then got to create some resources. And actually, you've done a lot of that thinking and you've done a lot of those resource creation. So if teachers haven't come across the resources for the from the Royal Metsoc, it will be, I think, a joy for them to find out. I've just been playing with a few bits and pieces because I thought I would. Just little bits. I started playing about with the dice game. I had a look at the PowerPoint and the online version. And it's about... It's from a climate extreme weather and chaos theory. 
just to try and get over the, the real misconception that students have about climate and weather. Yeah. And they don't understand the difference, a lot of them. But then neither do politicians, uh, uh, <laughs> quite a lot of them. Yes, and, you know, and then linking in extreme weather events. I mean, I can think of one American politician in the last few years who, you know, was, oh, we've got extremely cold weather, how can that be climate change, was still saying that sort of thing. Yeah. And as you say, it's that basic message about the difference between weather and climate and, and probabilities of events. I know probability is, is quite a difficult concept, but on the other hand, there are some contexts where people totally understand probability. So why they shouldn't be able to understand probability in the in the shape of weather and weather events, you know, it doesn't. It shouldn't be that hard to to get across. Um, I don't think it is because I think that dice game is a brilliant way of getting those sorts yeah. of things across. I just played it for a little while and I thought, oh crikey, if I was still if I was still teaching at Key Stage Three, I'd be using this. I've taken that out of context slightly, but you've got. A complete online weather and climate scheme of work for 11 to 14 geography, haven't you? Yep, so that's something that we developed towards the end of last year and, and launched at the beginning of this year. As I said, it was very exciting if people were GA members and they should have received a copy of the teacher's guide to go with it earlier this year. But even if they didn't, it's all online and it's all free. The teacher's guide, the accompanying CPD materials for teachers and, of course, all the resources for use in the classroom. There's some powerpoints and worksheets and a few videos and, and all sorts take me through it if you can remember because you do so much you might not be able to how does it start how does it flow what's it like okay so it's it's broken down into 20 topics so things like the difference between weather and climate and then there's more weathery topics there's more climatey topics but we were very keen that we didn't want people to stay in that kind of compartmentalizing things into weather and climate and climate change so there's climate change thread running through absolutely everything so whether you're looking at microclimates or hot deserts or what any of those 20 topics there's we always try and bring climate change into it a little bit so that that thinking is is developed there's a range of of levels so there's usually at least two different levels available depending on the ability level of the class you know they're aimed at 11 to 14 year olds there's obviously a big difference between a low ability 11 year old and a high ability 14 year old so we've tried to do a bit of provide a a bit of a range of of materials for that and also try to develop a few skills through the resources um, whether they're data skills or fieldwork skills or or whatever. They're not linked to any specific curriculum either are they so if I'm teaching whatever I just adapt and I don't need to do much adaptation I'll say but I, I just adapt it to suit my needs. Yes, we were very keen on that, um, partly so that teachers in all the four nations of the UK could use them, but also partly that so they don't become out of date as soon as any curriculum changes in any of those four nations. But also because I think at Key Stage 3, at least, when you're teaching weather and climate, the concepts are general enough across every curriculum that pretty much every teacher will be able to find what they need in those resources. I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet that people who know me know this, but... um... There's an awful lot of quite poor quality material out on the internet that looks good. It looks really nice and clean and shiny and polished. And, ooh, I'll use that in my classroom. And it promotes misconceptions. But there's also, because departments don't have a great deal of money, there's a reluctance to spend out on resources. So if somebody can find something that they think looks glossy and nice and it's free, they'll take it. And sometimes you think, well, 
if it's free, it can't be all that good. But actually, yours is brilliant. Who does it and how do you fund it? Well, the Royal Met Socks a charity. Most of our income comes from publishing, publishing so the, the academic journals that we produce as well as from people's membership fees. We spend that on our charitable activities, which are largely education. So both formal education and more general outreach. So that's how we fund it. Every now and again, we get a a tiny bit of external funding, which is always nice. And if anybody happens to know any great source of funding, we'd love to know about it. But most of it we, we fund internally. And in terms of who produces the resources, well, there's me. And then I have wide range of wonderful people who who contribute and in terms of the 11 to 14 book the the person who contributed a huge amount to write, writing the resources that support the book was rob gamesby from cool geography the cool geography website so he he wrote a lot of the the actual classroom resources even at the ga we find it difficult sometimes to produce things for free because it, they're never free there's always a cost somewhere so somebody has to pay i, I just thought it'd be interesting to ask you about the society's fundamental beliefs. What What's their aim in terms of the outreach that you do with education? Well, very fundamentally, it's basically just to improve the, the quality and the quantity of weather and climate teaching in schools. Um, we think that it's really important that absolutely every student leaves school with a very basic weather literacy that helps them just understand the weather around them. I guess that ties back in with that quote, that quote from COP26, that it's about places that are close to you in time and in place. I'm much more bothered about people understanding the weather here in the UK than I am about them understanding about tropical weather, for example, because ultimately it's probably the weather here in the UK that's going to have an impact on their day-to-day lives because the weather does affect just about everything, probably on whatever they choose to do professionally as well. And again, we think that it's important that everybody particularly now has a basic climate literacy that will help them engage with the the opportunities they have in the future as well as the responsibilities that they have. So you've embedded climate change as well haven't you in that resource it, it's it goes through weather and climate but it it, it, it it embeds a whole series of other concepts as you go through. That's right we didn't want to we didn't want to separate out climate change into something that was kind of tagged in on the end, as you frequently see um, in textbooks and all over the place. Um, we wanted to make sure that it was really integral to everything. And you've also looked, I, I, I think this is a real, this is a real difficult one. I don't know you what you think about this, but, but progression, I think progression in geography is really quite difficult. I've talked to people about the, the mastery curriculum and in maths you can master quadratic equations and you make a step change and you move on but how do you master globalization how do you master an understanding of climate change because it's different at y8 compared to y12 as you said about the abilities of students what have you done because i know you've done a fair bit with this on progression the thinking must have been really interesting so we did mainly focus on the progression of of skills Although there is a bit of a progression of knowledge as well. I mean, if you if you use uh, the resources in the scheme of work, if you went straight into topic 12, you would probably find that it assumes knowledge from earlier topics um, in the book. And that's clearly signposted. So each topic gives an indication of the previous two that we expect students to have covered so that they have got that knowledge going into the next topic that they need to have. And we're not assuming prior knowledge that they don't have. But then with skills, it's much, much easier. You know, if you introduce a climate graph, for example, fairly early on, then a little bit further on, you can 
expect, reasonably expect students to be able to do a little bit more with that climate graph rather than just plot it, maybe. How many different skills have you put in? Can I ask you about that? I don't know whether you've... I haven't <laughs> counted, I can't. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll move on. All the time we've been talking here, we've talked about climate change as a term, but there are geographers and beyond who are beginning to use much more dramatic terms, climate crisis or climate emergency. You've not used those. Is that a deliberate choice? Um, well, I guess as a climate scientist myself, up until very recently, the done thing was to appear very factual, unbiased, if you like, um, and to distance ourselves from the more emotive and lobbying kind of language and activity that you saw, you know, from from lobbying groups, from maybe more green the green lobby movement yeah that sort of thing partly that's because of the need to make sure that absolutely everything we say is 100% accurate and doesn't provide some climate change denier somewhere with a hook to hang an argument on which then casts a shadow on absolutely everything you do but I think that barrier is going slowly and we are beginning to see climate scientists using terms like like climate crisis and we have actually got a topic in the teacher's guide which is called exactly that which explores the development of terms like like climate emergency and also the data behind it you know how can we say that there is now an emergency what defines an emergency that sort of thing you are now aren't you busy creating new resources based on this year's ipcc report can you give us a preview of what's coming and, and a release date we've produced a few resources so the idea was to get these out really quickly after the ipcc report came out because we've done things based on ipcc reports in the past and it's just taken us too long to produce them. But then the IPCC report was delayed and delayed again. And in the end, it came out in August, which wasn't that long before COP26. And so it has taken us a little bit longer than we hoped to produce them. But we have, together with the RGS, produced a few resources aimed at A-level geographers. They've gone up onto the RGS website and Metlink website, um, our website, um, just this week. And we've also produced a whole load more, again, with, with Rob Gamesby from Cool Geography, um, aimed more at Key Stage 3 and GCSE Geography. Those are finished and they will be up on Metlink as soon as I have time to build them into the website, um, which will hopefully be before Christmas. And I hope to do a few more next year as well, based around the adaptation um, and mitigation reports from the IPCC when they come out. In this series, I've talked to quite a few people about COP26, from teachers to activists to academics, but you've seen the action close at hand. And I know we've talked about it a little bit because you've talked about the difference between the politicians and perhaps the, the business people. How confident are you for the future and our ability to keep the world's temperature within, at least within striking distance of 1.5 degrees? I think on the whole, I'm fairly optimistic and I do think there's a lot of really exciting development going on around the world, but we're so close to 1.5 degrees already, we might just have left it a bit too late to achieve that. I think it's reasonable to hope for something in between 1.5 and 2 degrees and maybe we'll manage to drop back down to 1.5 degrees relatively quickly. I don't know, but we can hope. And we can make sure that we do keep pressure on our politicians, which really is the single most effective thing any one individual can do. What do you see as the implications for the climate change, the physics implications, if you like? What are we going to see in terms of weather patterns and climate change 
Now, that's a million dollar question. That's like read the IPCC report. Another hour's podcast here. (laughs) For us here in the UK, the message has been very clear for well, for decades now, really, that we're going to see hotter, drier summers and warmer, stormier winters. So with the potential of both summer and winter flooding, the winter flooding because it's stormier and the ground gets saturated, the summer flooding because the ground's very dry and then it rains, then that water runs off and causes flash floods. But of course, there will be impacts on us far beyond that because we're part of a global system and, you know, impacts on food production and water availability and all sorts of other things around the world will have an impact on on us and on other people who, you know, there will be far more climate refugees in the world. And that is something that we in the, here in the UK also need to think about. This is the one of the places where meteorology, climatology and geography migration all start to, to mesh because it's all to do with interconnections. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I think I'm going to <clears throat> I'm going to wind up there. But before I do, I just would like to to say again how fantastic the resources are that the Royal Metsoc produces. Any teacher who's thinking I'm going to spend hours making resources for for the climate crisis would do very well to start looking at uh, the Royal Metsoc's website. So we'll put a a link on for that. Have you got any other advice for teachers who are not, they're not specialists, they've not got a lot of time, but they are interested? What's their, what are their best steps? You talk to lots of them. Oh, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so easy to be overwhelmed with, with what's available. And there are so many sources of, of information and resources. I think my my best advice is probably to find one reliable source of information that you like and that works for you and to just stick to that and not try and <laughs> not try and follow everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think even I have an overview of everybody who's producing climate change resources at the moment because it is very definitely a bandwagon that everybody has, has jumped on. But there are some there are some excellent people that you can follow. I, I won't name names um, because I'll almost definitely forget somebody and (laughs) that would be bad but yes find a reliable source of of information that works for you and and just stick with that probably (laughs) what's the view of the the trainee teachers that you've worked with how do they go away at the end of the session what what's their overarching feeling about about this in the future and their teaching of it to be honest, most of the teacher training I do at the moment is focused on, on weather rather than climate change, partly because there probably is more weather in the curriculum at the moment than, than climate change. It's, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for teachers to, go, teachers to go into climate change, but I think it has to take that teacher to want to teach it rather than because it's actually named in the curriculum at the moment. And yeah, hopefully the, the trainee teachers who, who I see go away feeling slightly more confident about teaching about it and maybe with a few good ideas and maybe they will go away and make it clouds in a bottle who knows <laughs> well here's my last question getting back to cloud in a bottle what are your your main heart sink misconceptions that teachers should look out for every time they spot a resource what are the ones that we should definitely be looking for and going oh no that is so dreadful a bit like air condensing a bit like air condensing. Okay, that high air pressure is because of sinking air literally pushing down on the surface of the earth and low pressure being because of air 
rising up and somehow sucking the surface of the earth up. That's a misconception that again breaks down as soon as you start thinking about it in any detail and just doesn't work. Plug hole vortices is a is a fun one. The fact that the way the water goes down a plug hole because of the Coriolis effect is different in different hemispheres and that you can see it change as you cross the equator. That's a, a quite a fun one to watch out for. What else? You've put me on the spot now. There are so many. We do actually go into quite a few in the in the 11 to 14 teacher's guide. Air masses, one that you come across quite often is different parts of the country affected by different air masses rather than one air mass affects the whole country but can affect different places differently. That's one that you come across quite a lot. Oh, there's loads of them. Yes, I'm not surprised there's that misconception about air masses. When I was at school, we, we drew a map of the British Isles and divided it into quarters. And then we labelled where the air masses were that affected each quarter. And I learned that stuff. Yep. It's no wonder it sits as a misconception. Yep. Right. Another, another, sorry, another good one is that any pressure over a thousand millibars is high pressure and anything under a thousand millibars is low pressure. That's one you see all the time as well. Yeah, there's loads of them. So what we really need to do is direct people to the resource online and send them to the misconceptions page and say, just check out this, because we didn't cover any of them in any great detail in that podcast. We just gave you a slight taster. Go away and find out a little bit more, which I think is the message of this, really. Go away and find a little bit more on the Royal Met SOC website. Download the resources, because they're absolutely fantastic. Thanks, John. Well, thank you for talking to us, well, talking to me today. It's been fascinating yet again, and um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks.